may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back here to Strength to Strength. We were just talking about how uh, we're right around our third year anniversary of Strength to Strength, and um, you might wonder, what is the what is the future of Strength to Strength? And I must say that um, myself and the planning team here, Glenn and Sam and and Justin and uh, Wendell also is part. Um, Brother John gives some uh, more pastoral or eldership advice here. Uh, but we haven't t- thought too much about the long distance future um, here. So we're we feel like God kind of raised up strength to strength um, like a, a seedling, you know, out of the spring dirt. And we're um, kind of along for the ride and seeing seeing where where he takes us. Um, we do have regular meetings here on Strength to Strength uh, with the admin team and Russia dreaming about kind of a uh, more of a, a radical church theme, um, thinking of 2025 and and um, the radical Refor- the 500th anniversary of the radical reformation. And some of those things are kind of stewing here. So that's probably some of the longest term thinking that we have done. So we do we do appreciate your prayers. Uh, that God will give us wisdom uh, on the direction. If you have any thoughts or input, feel free to feel free to uh, send those to us. And I see a lot of regulars here, and we really appreciate you being on here. So we're excited to be together, and I'm excited to have my friend brother Finney uh, on with us this morning. Um, I think brother Finney, this is your second time uh, on on this uh, on this platform. So welcome back. It's good to have you here. I do have a question for you. Um, how do you how does a you as a Bostonian um, non-coffee drinker uh, get up at this time in the morning and give a presentation? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, God's help. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you for for um, for uh, coming on here. And uh, Brother Finney is is uh, someone who's inspired me greatly for the last number of years. Ten years ago, um, this book came out. King Jesus claims his church. Brother Finney, how long were you um, at work writing this book? It was it was about a year on the weekends. Um, yeah, I was I had a of course I had a full time job, so it was it was uh, something that my wife graciously uh, would give me time on the weekends, especially Saturdays, to to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, this book uh, inspired me very much. I was just talking to a brother about that. Um, Especially the, the the vision for for moving into cities and and bringing God's kingdom and proclaiming that um, and it was a huge inspiration at the time that was kind of faltering um, in my wife and I's vision we we had that and then it was kind of waning and picking up your book and reading it really rekindled that flame so that's that's a really trans blessing in our lives uh, so yes quite a tone um, King Jesus claims his church you can get it on Scroll Publishing or Amazon definitely recommend it. Um, it's 10 years now since that's, that's come out. I think about 2013. And um, so I'm kind of picking it back up and reading through it again. So being challenged and, and blessed by it. Of course, Brother Finney is somebody who is, is one of the leaders there at the College of the Way uh, in Boston and started Sattler College, uh, a brother who is uh, striving to steward the gifts and talents and that God has given him. So thank you, Brother Finney, for being an example to all of us for that. And we're looking forward to your talk here this morning on biblical languages. So anticipating that challenge that you'll give to us, so the importance of learning that. So I, um, it's not something I have, I have uh, worked out or worked on. So maybe maybe you'll have uh, one person who will commit to digging into the biblical languages after this call. 
Um, so let's um, let's just pause for a second and and worship our Father. Um, there's there, I want to read an ancient creed here out of First Corinthians 15, and then we'll have prayer. So this is Paul here, um, and it's he's unpacking the reality and the um, of, of the of the of the resurrection of the resurrection of Jesus and the importance of that. And he he quotes this poem or, or creed. I'm just going to read that um, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Notice scriptures there, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some had fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So let's just bow our heads and pray to our risen king and ask his blessing. Father, thank you for being a God that is so gracious, that is so great, that is so far beyond our comprehension. We thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us, to the prophets, through your, your, your scripture, and now through your son, Jesus, in this new covenant. And we're so thankful to live in this new covenant and understand who you are through scriptures, through Jesus, your son. And we're just so amazed again, as we think of, in a, maybe in a special way, the, the death, the gruesome death the horrendous death that you experienced on the cross. And also we have much hope and much excitement as we think about the resurrection, just as it excited your your followers and your disciples and brought back hope. It brings us so much hope. And it's in the risen name of your son, Jesus, that we come to you this morning and ask that you would pour out your spirit on this call, on Brother Finney as he shares, on all the attendees and the listeners Father, we need you deeply uh, in these times to, to give us the fuel, to give us the desire, to, to give us the power to be your witnesses on earth in a world that's rapidly growing darker. But Father, we know that you're with us and that we're more than conquerors through you. So Father, bless this call in a special way, Black Brother Finney, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Brother Finney. Um, it's all yours. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's good to good to be with you all this morning. Let me share my screen here. I'll I'll try to to make sure I can talk through these these issues and not be over really overly reliant on the slides because I I see there are people who have called in, but hopefully everybody can see this now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you, brother. Okay. Great. So, yeah, I'm I'm here this morning uh, to share with you some thoughts on biblical languages. It's a real honor to be with you all, and thanks for getting up so early in the morning. It's always nice to see so many faces, especially familiar faces, on a call like this. It's encouraging to me. Okay. So, so why biblical languages? And I'll I'll, I'll tell some of my journey and history through all this as I walk through the the slides here. But as we begin, I want to be very, very clear on a point that can easily be misunderstood. And I want this to be a foundational 
point in my talk here, which is to say that the translation of the Bible into English or other languages, Dutch, Hindi, Spanish, Mandarin, you pick the language, it, it has been a fundamentally successful endeavor. I don't want anyone to walk away from this talk down on Bible translations or in some way questioning the value and, and importance of Bible translation into other languages. Translation has been very, very beautiful, very important, very necessary for uh, the vast number of people who live on the earth today in order to comprehend God's word. And so please understand that I, even though I'm going to be talking a lot about the value of biblical languages, this is not intended to diminish in any way the success of Bible translation. I want to very, very strongly affirm this. And I want to say that Christianity is not Islam. You know, in Islam, you will often hear that Muslims and, and various imams will say that when you translate the Quran, which is their holy book, into some language beside Arabic, there's something there that's now defective. And you can't really understand the Quran unless you're reading it in the original Arabic. Christianity has, has historically not been like that. We have not had this concept of a holy language that unless you know this holy language, there's something wrong with you or you're defective in some way. In fact, to the contrary, Christianity has historically celebrated the translation of the Bible into other languages. And I am firmly in that camp that we, we ought to be rejoicing that the Bible is, is going and has gone into hundreds and hundreds of languages all throughout history. So this is, this is very important here. So, so please don't um, misunderstand anything I'm going to say here. Translations have been marvelous and edifying for spreading the gospel all over the world. So I am a, a, a big believer in Bible translations. I, I, I think that they are one of the most incredible um, gifts that we have of bringing the Bible into the vernacular heart language of people. And frankly, even if you know the Bible very, very well in Hebrew and in Greek, I still think there's a value in you reading it in your heart language. Okay, so, so why read the Bible then in the original languages? And this is an analogy that I have found very useful and helpful here. So for those who can't see this, there's a, a bunch of pictures shown here where on one half of the picture, it's the photograph in color, and in the other half, it is in black and white. Okay, so on the upper left here, you can see a picture of these peppers here, yellow peppers and red peppers and green peppers. And you can see when, when you look at it in black and white, particularly the, the red and the green peppers, you, you can barely distinguish them from one another. And if there's just something much more eye-popping and beautiful about seeing this picture in color compared to black and white. Below that is a bowl of cereal, probably an unhealthy cereal here. But when you see this one on the right, it almost looks like oatmeal or you can't hardly tell what it is. But again, seeing it in color just brings out so much more of the, of the information and beauty here. And then, and then on the right here is a picture of a dock uh, leading out to some kind of a lake. And again, just seeing the colors and 
the textures of, of the wood and the, the plants here and the, the blue uh, shining across the water. It's just, it's so much more beautiful. And we, we take it for granted, the value of color until you don't have it. And this is, I think, one of the best analogies that, that I know of for what's the difference between the Bible in the original versus the Bible in translation. The Bible in translation is like a black and white photograph. It's not that any of these are inaccurate. The photograph of the peppers, the cereal, or the, the dock here. They're, they're all very, very accurate there, but they're, they're missing something. They're missing some of the, the color and the information and the beauty that is to be found there. So, so that's why I don't want to be down on Bible translations. It's not that I'm going to say that they're inaccurate. They can be depending on the, the quality of the translation, but it's more that they're, they're missing something that's very important. And I'm going to give several examples of this. Uh, in my in my talk today, but in the same way that we appreciate color, we ought to be appreciating and striving to read the Bible in the original languages. There are times where it is uh, the ability to perceive color actually gives you a distinct advantage. Say, if you are looking for for food, if you're looking for predators, if you're trying to detect danger, nature in general has used color as a way to signify importance. And so, so, for example, there's various frogs in Latin America that have these unusual colors, and that's a signal of venom or poison. In general, the, the snakes that are some of the more poisonous tend to have very bright colors with them. And so, so colors, in general, communicate an emphasis. They communicate something about about relative importance and how we can spot something in a, in a sea of, of uh, noise in order to bring out something that's actually signal here. Okay, so, so this is, again, gonna be for me a, a helpful analogy for us understanding why we should be reading the Bible in the original languages. Okay, I'm gonna deal head on now with an objection that I've heard many, many, many times. You've probably heard it. And if you haven't heard it, heard it, you've probably thought about this objection before. So, so what is the objection? Why should I invest all the time and the energy to learn the biblical languages? The Bible's already been translated into my language for most of us, English. So it just seems like it's too academic, it's too heady, it's unnecessary. It, it, it is a big investment of time. Why in the world should I do this? And I think a lot of people tend to view the biblical languages as something more for an elite class or from a, for a scholarly class. And, and I can understand this. I can, I can certainly be sympathetic with this as a reflexive objection. But as, as you answer this objection, as I answer this objection, I, I like to answer this objection with another objection, uh, which is, how would you respond to someone who questioned the value of reading? So if you go back and look in much of history, most people were illiterate. If you go to, to ancient India or ancient Rome or societies like that, you didn't need to be uh, able to read the Bible to be a Christian in those societies. I think we would all agree with that. If you were a, a peasant living in ancient Rome, nothing wrong with you if you didn't know how to read the Bible or anything like that. You, 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 you could manage just fine. 
But why do we emphasize reading and why historically have missionaries emphasized reading as much as they have? Okay, and, and I think the answer to this is hopefully pretty obvious that although reading is not necessary to be a good and faithful Christian, my personal guess is that some of the most faithful Christians that we will meet in on the other side of eternity will be those who are illiterate. Um, but we still believe that there's a great value in being able to read the Bible for our own. And it's because it, it opens up the door to, to access the Bible in ways that otherwise we're dependent on somebody else to read to us, or we have to go to a, a meeting to hear it read. When we have the Bible, the ability to read the Bible in, in our own native tongue, I'm not talking about original languages here, we have gained so, so much. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell a little story here. Um, in, in the area of India that my parents are from, I was born in the United States. My parents come from an area in South India called Kerala. That area was, was generally poorly evangelized. There was a community of Christians there that actually descend from uh, the apostle Thomas who went to India after the resurrection. But generally speaking, Christianity did not flourish there until the late 1800s when some missionaries from Europe came to that part of India. And one of the things that they discovered was that literacy was very, very poor in this part of India, extremely poor. And they said, we want you Indians to be able to read the Bible in the original and in, in your own native tongue which is called Malayalam. It's a, it's a language that's a South Indian language. And so they decided that they were going to, to learn Malayalam and they did learn Malayalam beautifully, these people from countries like Germany and other European nations. And they said, we're going to teach you to read and write Malayalam so that you can read and, uh, and read the Bible in Malayalam and understand it for yourself. Okay, so they did that and they they attached these little schoolhouses to these church buildings that they had built. And in fact, to this day in Malayalam, the language that my parents speak and speak around the house and speak to me in often, uh, the word for school in Malayalam is palikodam. Palikodam means building attached to the church. It's very interesting that here we are long after those missionaries. And when you're going to school, when you're going to Palikodam, you're going to the building attached to the church. Well, that particular region in India, literacy today is more than 95%. In the rest of India, it's about 40%. Uh, infant mortality in that part of India is less than England. And it is just a far more prosperous part of India. And if you go to Kerala compared to the North, you'll see this for yourself. So so what, what happened here was missionaries said, we believe in the value of you Indians, you Malayalis, this, the people who live in this part of India, being able to read so that you can access the Bible on your own. And it caused incredible growth in that society. And now that part of India has a much higher percent Christian, and it has blessed the whole community because of the value of reading there. Now, I, I use this as a small example because I think everybody would nod their heads and say, yes, we are so thrilled that those missionaries came there and saw the value of, of reading so that people could read the Bible, so that they could understand 
the gospel in their native tongue. Interestingly, the Hindu communities there were opposed to educating and having the, the ordinary people be able to read. Uh, they, they advocated this caste system, this kind of hierarchy of, of people where they didn't think it was appropriate that lower class people be able to read. It was really a tool of economic oppression and a tool of almost a form of slavery there. So I say all this, I know it's kind of a long setup here, for we all believe in the value of reading so that we can read the Bible in our own tongue, so that we can, we can have access to high quality Christian literature. In the same way, I'm going to say not as much of a gain, and I'll be the first to say that just reading is going to be much more of a gain than learning the biblical languages. But there is so much to be gained, which I'm going to try to convince you of, if you invest the time and energy into the biblical languages. So is it a lot of work? Yes. Is learning how to read a lot of work? Yes. To be a good reader takes years and years and years of time. But reading is not something that we believe is academic and heady and unnecessary. We believe this is something that opens up a whole world of possibilities and potential for you. And in the same way, I'm going to contend that learning the biblical languages opens up a whole world of possibilities and potential that will help us to be more faithful Christians. Okay, I mentioned this before with respect to that black and white and color analogy. And this is something that I find to be one of the greatest values of learning the biblical languages, which is English in general has a quite restrictive word order. So our sentences typically follow the word order of subject, verb, object. I saw the dog. I on the subject, saw would be the verb, object would be the dog. Um, Joe kicked the soccer ball. Joe would be the subject, verb, the verb would be kicked. The soccer ball would be the object. You can vary that somewhat, but in general, our, our word order is stereotypically following that order. Well, as it turns out, especially in Greek, to some extent Hebrew, but especially in Greek, word order is vastly more flexible and you can emphasize certain words or phrases and, and play with the word order in order to communicate a certain degree of emphasis here. So there are these little tags on the words, these endings on the words that, that tell you what the, the grammatical value is of the of the word. So for example, in English, if I say the dog saw the lion, that means something very different than the lion saw the dog, right? Because even though the lion is in one case, the object and in one case, the subject, it, it means something very different by virtue of word position. In Greek, what, what they would do is they, they put a little ending on the word that tells you if it's the subject or the object. And so when we use the word lion as the subject or object, it's the same exact word, right? The lion saw the dog. Okay, the lion is spelled the same way. It has the same value if it's the subject. Whereas the, the dog saw the lion, again, it's the same word. What, what they would do in Greek and what you do do in, in ancient Greek is you put a little ending that tells you, no, it's the subject here. And so it's actually, it's gonna be leon in the subject. So we get our word lion from leon. But if it's the object, it's leonta. So leonta is the objective case there. 
And so you could actually put the lion, uh, Leonta, in the object uh, part first, uh, Leonta uh, saw the dog. <laughs> so here you would, you, you could actually communicate that the, the lion is, is still the object, but you can have it be the first word of the sentence because of this little ending there. Hopefully that's, that's um, understandable. If it's not, we can ask questions about that, but you have so much more flexibility there. And so because of that immense flexibility in word order, you can do much more with respect to poetry and emphasis and meaning here. I'm gonna give you an example here. So this is Ephesians 2.10 in the New King James. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared hand, beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a familiar passage to most of us. So I won't read the whole thing in Greek, but the first part is of to God es men poema. Uh, so what is fascinating about this, and of course this is Paul who's the author here, is he puts as the very first word of the sentence here, this word of to. Of to is the word his. Okay, so by fronting that word, by pulling that word way at the beginning of the sentence here, he's trying to emphasize it. It's hard to do this in English. If you, if you tried to, to capture this in English, you would do something like maybe underlining the word. So I think this is probably the most accurate way to do this. So we, for we are his workmanship, if you underline it or put it in bold, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, our Bible translations none that I know of, at least, use bold and underlining um, King James, New King James, ESV, NIV. None of those do that. And so you're left with a sentence here that doesn't communicate in the way that I read this, this emphasis that Paul is trying to put on his. It's beautiful, right? He's trying to highlight this. He's trying to say, he's trying to highlight that that we're owned by God. We're, we're, the, we're the product of God's craftsmanship here. You, you could try to do this by switching the word order and saying his workmanship we are. It's kind of awkward English created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. OK, so I use this as a small example. This is not a theologically important point. It's a point of emphasis. It's a point of just what is Paul stressing in this? But I find this to be beautiful. And when when I read the Bible, often I have this like. Oh, that's what he's emphasizing in Greek. And so many times when you're reading something in, in the original language, the color emerges, the, that, that uh, pepper emerges out of the flat background, you finally get it. And this happens so often in Greek where they're, they're using word order very carefully to lay out emphasis and I won't go into this one because it's beyond our scope here, but even to lay out the logic of development, this, I thought about trying to include examples of participles and main verbs and things like that. It, it's, it's too complicated for a talk this short, but the authors are, are using emphasis and laying out logical development of thought in ways that we, we can hardly begin to do in English. I'll give a, one more example on this. This is relatively small example again, but something that I just find to be beautiful. Um, so this is Galatians 6.2. Again, another familiar verse. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so here is the, the sentence in Greek here. 
alelon tanvare vastazate, que juntos anapleurosate ton nomon tu Christu. So that's the, the, the original Greek underneath that. And again, the word order here is so interesting, uh, but there's more than just word order. So the first thing that, that Paul does is he puts the word one another first. Alelon is the first word of the sentence here. So I, I don't even know how we could try to kind of emphasize this other than using underlining or italics or bold there and still have it be good English. Uh, but he's saying one another, emphasizing that, uh, burden, uh, or, sorry, one another first here. And then he does something here that, again, is, is some, somewhat complex for our discussion this morning. But the word here, vastazate, is the imperative word. So that's the word bear. And he chooses a form of the, of the imperative that is aspectually imperfective. I don't want to explain all, what all that means, but it basically means that the verb has a continuous feel to it, um, an ongoing aspect of the of the verb here and then finally this word here i'm going to talk about this word in a moment here but hutos this word here which got translated as so a, a more full explanation of what that means is something like in this manner so so if i were to try to capture this in english better i would say something like be bearing one another's burdens and i chose be bearing even though it's clumsy to, to communicate this ongoing feel of the word bear. And in this manner, fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, and then highlighting or underlying the word one another. Okay, so again, it's clumsy. It doesn't quite work that well in English. And so I understand why the English translators render it as they do. But they have made black and white something that has color in it. And so as I said, this is something that we can uh, appreciate and see in, in, in Greek that just doesn't, come over very well into English. Okay, John 3.16. I, I mentioned this, this word hutos here, this word so, uh, this hutos here, this word, um, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, this is the same word that's used here when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. So hutos garegapis and hoteos ton kotmon is how it, it is rendered in Greek. And for years and years and years, in fact, for most of my life, when I read this verse or when I heard this verse, very famous verse, one of the most famous verses of the whole Bible, I thought for God so loved the world, for God loved the world so much. God loved the world like so deeply that he gave his, his, his only son, his only begotten son. That's actually not a very accurate understanding of what the word so means there. The hutos there is more like in this manner, not describing how much the quantity of God's love, but the manner of how God loves the world. So for this is the way that God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. So it's talking not about quantity or degree, but about the, the, the way in which God has chosen to manifest his love to the world by giving his only begotten son. And in fact, so that's, I think, the primary meaning here of hutos. But, but also, if you go and look up to the previous verse, that it also bridges the previous verse where, I'm paraphrasing this, but Jesus talks about how the snake was lifted up in the desert. And, and people, of course, could look at the snake, that bronze serpent, and, and be healed from their, their snake bites. 
and and it's probably that hutos is is also linking back to that previous way so so how did god save the israelites when they were bitten by those poisonous snakes by having moses fashion the bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole so they could look at look at that so for in this manner so reflecting back to the moses example of the serpent being lifted up on the pole uh, this is how God loved the world. So it's both reflecting back the previous verse and also talking about the the, the way in which God loves the world uh, through giving Jesus his son. It's, it's not about the degree there. So I mean, I totally missed that because I just took so in that straightforward manner that I think probably most people do. Uh, so this is this is something that I think is worth noting that when we go through and read the Bible in the original language, it causes us to slow down to, to ponder things that have been very familiar to us and fresh meaning gets unlocked, which is devotionally very, very beautiful. Okay, I wanna spend just a short amount of time here about the notion of what is translation. So here's a, here's a small figure that I've taken from the website below that is more on the linguistic side of things. And linguistics can be very complicated, but this is a a very simple concept here where if we think about the the concept of what is a sign in a language or linguistics, a sign has something that is called, which is the signifier and then the signified. So the signifier in this case is the word dog, D-O-G. And the signified here is this image that we conjure up in our mind when we hear the word dog. And when we in English hear the word dog, we think of poodles and German shepherds and golden retrievers and you know all the many types of dogs there. And we, we have this kind of container in our mind that is, is the, the signified from that word dog. That whole package of the signifier and the signified is the word dog. Okay, so simple concept here. Just just think about here for any word, any signifier, we have a range of meanings here that come with that. So again, we can think of big dogs and little dogs and puppies and old dogs, and they're all in that container for us. What's happening when translation is occurring, and this is something we don't think nearly enough about, is we're taking a sign in a source language, which has a signifier and a signified, and then we're, we're trying to move that into a target language and find the appropriate sign with its own signifier and signified. So sign A would be in the source language, sign B would be in the target language. Now, that seems straightforward. And you might think, oh, yeah, no problem. But the problem is actually very, very complex here because especially if you're monolingual, especially if you don't, if you haven't had much experience going from one language to the other, what is in one language sign, the the signifier and signified can be very different and overlapping with what's in another word with another language. Okay, so these signs map somewhat coarsely onto one another. And so it's actually a very difficult exercise to to choose the right sign in the target language that has the same range of meanings over here. Okay, so there's there's a famous example of this that I actually have not verified. So this is maybe more lore than than reality. But, you know, there's there's this concept of 
of we have like one word in English for snow, uh, S N O W, and we, it's this white powdery stuff that falls from the sky. But if it's white snow or dry snow or flaky snow or coarse snow, we we just have one word for that. Whereas Eskimos apparently have many different words for the word snow. They have different words for dry snow versus wet snow versus muddy snow. And so, so what word do you, cho do you choose if you have a big container word over here, like in English, if you're trying to translate the English word snow into an Eskimo version of that word for snow over there? It, it's not so easy, right? Which one do you choose? Do you, do you choose the dry snow one? Do you choose the wet snow one? Do you have do a bunch of and statements to say it's dry snow and wet snow and falling, falling. It's like, how do you do that? And so it's, it's very tricky. So there's, there's a, an Italian saying, traditori, traditori, and it's translators are traitors. And I think it's a, it's a good principle for us to think about, which is that there's something about the act of translation where, where you're, you're doing something here that's, off and it's not your fault it's not dishonest nothing like that but there's a degree in which translation is going to be committing uh, committing some act of of um, being a traitor here because you're you're going to be compromising meanings you're going to be choosing words that don't exactly map on and there's a lot of subjectivity in this and in fact some people say uh, as well all translation is interpretation so you're going to have your own personal sense of what the sign is in, in this target language. And you're going to have to choose that. And so you are relying on the translator and you're hoping they've done a fair job there, but they're going to be putting their own meanings into that translation, whether they, whether you know it or not. Okay. Here, here's an example of this. So this is a, again, famous sentence here uh, from John chapter three, verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Okay, so, so there's a word here again. And the, the Greek word that is underneath that is anothen. And anothen is a very tricky word. So if we go back here to this, this concept of these signs. So anothen would be the signifier. And the signified in Greek has two different primary senses. So one is again. So that's straightforward, doing something multiple times. But it can also be from above. Okay, so this like makes no sense to us. Why would the word anothen simultaneously communicate again and from above. It, it's, not a, it's not a package that we have in English. There's no, there's no English word that we have where again and from above fit together very well. Or I would say even at all. I, I, I can't think of a word that, that has those two bundled into it. Well, as it turns out, when here, when Jesus says, he who comes from above is above all, he actually is using the same word. He who comes anothen is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. Okay, so what happened in English when the translators rendered this is they chose just to just use completely different words here and just keep this, these as again. And, the, and this one here is from above, even though Jesus is using the same word 
and this is this is one continuous dialogue here uh, that that is is intended to to be using these same words uh, in a, in, a, in a way that refers back to one another. I know of one translation that says that tried to bring that together and say, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The problem with that is that Nicodemus is understanding it as again, because he talks about, can you go in your mother's womb again? You know, that, that doesn't really work there. It, it just, there's just no good way to do this. There's no good way for us in English to do this other than switching words or putting footnotes in or something like that, because it just doesn't map onto this. Now, theologically, I think there's actually something here where I think Jesus, when he says one is born again, I think he means both again and from above at the same time. And that they're actually both communicated in this word. It's hard for us to do that in, in English, right? We, we can hardly uh, fit that together in our mind. But here, when he says he who comes from above, he who comes anothen is above all. Again, it's a continuous narrative here. And he's intending for that meaning to be flowing through. So translation is, is uh, translators are traitors. <laughs> they're, they're doing something here that they've got to do, but it's, it's very difficult to, to pull this off. Okay, so let, let's do one more example of this and just, just to appreciate how, tra- how difficult translation is here. So going back to the word for dog. So the Greek and Hebrew word for dog it signifies unclean person as well, or even male prostitutes. And, and that is, I don't think, something that most of us, when we use the word English, we're thinking of when we use the word dog. We're not thinking of a ritually unclean person. And I, I don't think anybody would think of a male prostitute when they think of the word dog. So this is Deuteronomy 23, 18. It's similar in the King James and New King James. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, you read this in English and you might be thinking, okay, wages of a harlot I get. The price of a dog, okay, did you have a dog and you sold the dog and now you've made some money? Like, why can't you bring that into the temple um, to pay your offering? Why would that be an abomination to God? So the King James and New King James have chosen to render this word uh, here as as a dog here, which is a valid understanding of the underlying he- Hebrew word. Here's how the NIV translates it. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. Okay, this makes a lot more sense to us because now we're like, oh, I get it. Like, yeah, God doesn't want prostitution revenue coming into his, into his house. Now, a lot of people would say the, the King James and New King James was quote the more literal there um, because it, it chose to use the word dog there. But I don't even know how to how to properly construe that word literal versus dynamic here because the real issue is that there is an underlying Hebrew word kelev that communicates dog and male prostitute in in one package in one sign. And how you choose to render that in English, it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's that we just don't have the right word in English that has both of those packaged up into it. I would actually generally probably lean more towards the NIV's translation there because I think that's more the sense of what people would feel and would be connoted there. But dog is is trying to communicate, you know, maybe the sense of this is just a, a very 
unclean activity here and it, maybe it's a more visceral way as opposed to a more uh, direct way of communicating male prostitution there. So again, hopefully you're, you're, you're seeing some of the richness and the complexity of translation in this. Okay, I'm gonna give another reason here. I'm giving a bunch of reasons why I think it's great to do the biblical languages. You will learn English better. I, I have taught biblical languages for uh, several years and consistently I have found that most people don't actually really learn English grammar until they do a language like Greek. Uh, it, it very consistently I have found this, that if you ask many English speakers, what's a participle, what's a finite word, what's verbal aspect, what are the principal parts of a, of a word, What's a subjunctive? They're like, what? You know, what? I don't know what these words are. But when they study the biblical languages, all of a sudden they're like, oh, now I'm understanding English better. There's a, a great value in this. I'll, I'll give an example here of two English sentences. So here's a, a valid English sentence that says, I was a boy who admired my father. Okay, totally, totally uh, valid, grammatically correct. The next sentence is, is, if I were a boy again, I would honor my father more intentionally. Now, I hope you noticed here, in this sentence, I said, I was a boy. The sentence is, if I were a boy. Now, why is that? So I and boy are both singular, uh, but here I'm using were and not was. Well, it's because the mood of this first sentence is indicative, if you know what that means. The mood of this clause here is subjunctive. And there's a rule in English that says if you're speaking in the subjunctive, you're supposed to take a singular verb and make it plural in the subjunctive. So it's not correct English to say if I was a boy again. You're supposed to say if I were a boy again. Now, a lot of people don't know what the subjunctive is and may or may not do this correctly. But Greek is the same, has the same concept that you take the word and when you go move into the subjunctive, you modify it a little bit so that you, you flag that you're in the mood of hypothetical. You're in the mood of probability, not in the mood of reality. Most people who are English speakers hardly could describe these, these concepts here. And it's a good thing to know our language. It's a good thing to speak proper English and to understand our own grammar better. Okay, I'll give you another example here of why we should learn the biblical languages. So this is, I think, one of my top reasons is that it can make overly familiar passages fresh again. I prayed the Lord's Prayer for years, for decades, without understanding very important parts of its meaning. So the KJV, I think we all know this by heart. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Most of us on this call have said this many, many times. And it's, it's one of these passages that we say so many times that we can go numb to it. And I remember when I was learning Greek, uh, I came to this passage and I was completely floored when I went through this passage in Greek. So it's in Greek, it's pater hemon hoen tois uranois hagiasteto to onomasu elteto he vasilio vasiliasu yeneteto to telemasu hosen urano kepites yes ton araton hemon ton epusian dos hemin semeron he afes hemin tafilemta hemon huske emis afiemen tois ofiletes hemos hemas. Uh, himon. 
que me dicen que es más inspiración a la rusa es más a por tu ponerú que so I learned that in Greek. I just recited that from memory there. And one of the things that blew me away was these lines here. So hallowed be thy name is Hagiasteto Tonamasu. Thy kingdom come is Eletheto Hevasiliasu, and thy will be done is Yeneteto Totalemasu, Hos and Urano Kepitesies, as it is in heaven. Let it be on earth. Each of these words here, the hallowed, the come, and the be done, they're actually imperatives. Okay, an imperative is a command word. So if, if you say, um, get up, move over, sit down, come here, those are all command words. And for some reason, because I prayed this prayer too many times, I missed that these were command words, imperative words. In English, when we use an imperative, we almost always put the, the verb first in the sentence. So come here, sit down, uh, talk to him. We, we will put the verb first there just by, by construction. Now, it, it did, the translators did that with hallowed, but they didn't do it with thy kingdom come and thy will be done. In Greek, the verb is first in each of those three lines, hagiasteto, elefeto, yeneteto. Uh, there are third-person imperatives. And so I was like, man, I missed this all these years. And so I made my own translation of this. Uh, Our Father in heaven, be revered your name, come your kingdom, be accomplished your will, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. And the punchiness and the force of these being imperatives, I just totally missed that for most of my life until I read it in Greek. And now I'm like, Come your kingdom. This is, this is, of course, it's an imperative that we're, we're praying. But just like when we say, God, um, uh, heal, heal um, Bill or um, help me today. Those are imperatives. They're imperatives of entreaty. We're speaking to a superior, but they're imperatives. That's, that's what Jesus is telling us to do in these prayers. Come your kingdom. Be accomplished your will. These are supposed to be passionate statements that we are crying out to God for. Um, I won't get into this one here, but give us to stay. I, I usually say our super substantial bread. It's a complicated word. It's a controversial word. Origin and others talk about this, but I don't think it means daily like we think of it today. Um, and forgive us of death. The rest of it, I think, is is quite quite accurate here. Um, but these opening lines, I just I, I missed. And so now, when I pray the Lord's prayer, I pray it with such a different uh, intention. Okay, here's another. Uh, reason to learn the biblical languages is which version should you memorize? You know, sometimes somebody will say, oh, I heard it when I was young in the King James, but now I'm hearing it in the New King James or in the ESV. And I think it's actually one of the main obstacles for Bible memory is just version confusion. It's just like, which one am I going to pick? And people are switching constantly from one to the other. And it can be very frustrating here. Um, how much better it is to, to say like, you know what? I'm just going to lock in on the Greek or the Hebrew, and that's going to be my definitive. Now, I still think you should memorize it in English because most people aren't going to know the Greek or Hebrew. But I have found so much peace and just getting away from all the confusion just to pick and say, I'm going to learn in the original language. That's going to be my base. That's going to be what I meditate on. And I, I will try to learn it in an English translation as well. But I find that just gives me a rock that I can steadily lean on. You will be able to engage with more formidable and important writings about the Bible. So I started to learn Greek when I was in medical school. It was 
it was something where I would go to various libraries and I'd open up different books about the Bible and I would see sometimes Greek script on the bottom and my heart would sink. And I would think like, oh no, I can't really get into this book. And it was often books by authors whom I respected that had I knew, I knew had great content in it. And it was just this ceiling that I was hitting. There is a very real ceiling that you will hit without the biblical languages. Certain books and discussions will be inaccessible for you without knowledge of the biblical languages. And I would say some of the highest quality and best materials fall into that category. And so if you want to be able to like crack through that ceiling, you just got to learn the biblical languages. You got to bite the bullet and do it. Um, I, I think it's something that is, is increasingly important in a, in a world where, you know, Protestants emphasize going to seminary and learning Greek and Hebrew. That's historically not been something that a lot of uh, Anabaptists or kingdom groups have done. And, and what it means is that a lot of the, the exegetical war is happening apart from the contributions of those who are say more kingdom minded. And that, that's, that's too bad. Uh, it's too bad that there's so much impressive and important literature that's been written and developed that is just beyond the scope of, of a lot of people because they haven't invested the time there. It used to be the case that this was expected um, much more broadly, that when you were young, you would learn Greek and Latin, especially um, from a very young age. Um, certainly by the time you graduate from high school, you would have basic familiarity with those languages. And certainly by the time you were done with college, you would be very proficient in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And just in general, our, our society believes less in the value of primary sources and just has lower esteem of the Bible such that this has, this emphasis has, has gone away. Um, by way of analogy here, um, another analogy I like to give is imagine being married to someone and having to speak through a translator to, communi to communicate with your spouse. I mean, that would be incredibly frustrated. You're not going to be married to somebody and, and not somebody not learn the other person's language. If you want close, direct contact with the Bible, you just, you got to take away the middleman. You got to say like, I, I don't want anybody in between me and, and God's word. Um, I, I think we should feel frustrated here. Not, not, and again, I've said before, it's not that they're inaccurate. There's, there's a lot of great things here, but we should feel a sense of like, ah, oh, what is it really saying? We should really want to directly engage with scripture with nothing in between. Just like you want to be able to talk to your spouse with nobody in between. We want to be able to engage in the Bible and in many of these other books with nobody in between. Okay, um, I'm getting close to time here, so I'm gonna go quickly here. You will be better able to discern truth from error. So I was raised in Protestant uh, evangelical churches, specifically charismatic churches. Uh, that was my, my upbringing. And I was taught this from the Bible. So here's the King James where it says, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been made to drink into one spirit. Matthew 3.11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So I was taught growing up that if you read 1 Corinthians 12 in the King James, for by one spirit, are all are we all baptized into one body? It sounds like here the spirit is the agent doing the baptism. 
and it's and he is placing us into one body. So I was taught that First Corinthians 12 is speaking of the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body, putting us into the body of Christ. This would be your conversion uh, experience where you believe this is what I was taught. And then in Matthew 3, this is John the Baptist speaking, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That he is obviously Jesus, that Jesus is the one doing the baptism uh, with the Holy Ghost. And so I was taught, see, there's two baptisms here. There's, there's one baptism that puts you into the body. And there's this other later baptism that Jesus is doing where you're baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. And in my settings, that was understood to be, you would speak in tongues and things like that. Okay, it makes sense. Well, the problem is, is that the King James, like all, almost all Bibles, was translated by committee. Uh, different authors, uh, different translators will do different books. And they don't translate consistently from one book to the other. And so here, by one spirit is, is how they render this preposition. And here, with the Holy Ghost is rendered as a different preposition. As it turns out, I'm not going to go through this here in the interest of time, but it's actually the same preposition here that is used in, uh, in, in, with both of them. So the preposition is N, um, uh, epsilon nu or EN would be how you transliterate that. So really if you want to be much more consistent for in one spirit, all are we all baptized into one body? He shall baptize you in the Holy spirit. It's not that the Holy spirit is the agent doing the baptism here. And here Jesus is doing the baptism. It's just the translation was inconsistent. And here I was for years and years and years hearing this in the churches that I was in. And it was all based on over-reliance on the English in particular, the King James here, that was just inconsistent of the two. And in fact, the Greek is identical. So I would personally say that Jesus is the baptizer in both instances. And the spirit is, is the substance into which we are being, uh, or the person into which we are being baptized. This relates to this. So much of what you hear in, from the pulpit about Greek or Hebrew is just wrong. This is a non-scientific study, but I, I have working Christian radio for, for several years. I've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons, probably thousands of sermons. I think the majority of what you hear when preachers appeal to the Greek or Hebrew is just wrong. Um, the, uh, I could give many, many examples of this in your time. I won't, but uh, I, I almost have <laughs> my ears and are now attuned for when somebody makes an appeal there because it's just, it's wrong. Um, your preaching and Bible study will be vastly improved with knowledge of the biblical languages as well. Um, so I, I believe that our sermons should be the tip of the iceberg, meaning that what people are actually hearing when you are speaking is a small fraction of the preparation and the knowledge of what you have there. I, I would advocate that you should begin your sermons by reading the passage in the original languages, doing an, a, a full, proper, inductive Bible study of that, building out an exegetical outline, building out a homiletical outline. And what people are going to see and hear when it's all said and done is the tiniest slice of that. I, I, I think I'm well attuned enough to these issues that you can tell if it's the tip of the iceberg or if it's the whole enchilada, you know, that's all they have. And, and they're kind of groping and using almost fallacious ideas here. Our, our Bible study should be rooted and grounded in the truth, knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment. I mean, there are so many examples I could give of this. Maybe I'll just give a couple of quick examples. You know, how many times have we heard, 
there's these different kinds of love, agape love and phileo love and eros love, you know, divine love and, and friendship love and romantic love. And I mean, it's, just, it's a meme, right? So many people repeat that. And it's just wrong. I mean, it's just, it's just wrong. The uh, Demas who loves the world, he agapes, ag agapaos the world. Um, uh, the author of the Song of Songs, he, when he loves his wife's breast, he agapaos her breast. It's not, it's not some, some special word there um, that communicates divine selfless love. It, it, it's just, it's just wrong. Um, there are many, many exegetical fallacies. I, you'll hear people talk about the word power, dunamis in Greek, and they'll say, we get our word dynamite from that. And so it's this explosive power. It's this amazing thing. And, and you're like, wait a minute, the word dynamite was coined in the 20th century. Yeah, it's based on a Greek word, but now we're saying that the Greek word takes meaning from the English word dynamite, like explosive. Like it's, just, it's just so silly. Um, there are many, many examples of this that you hear often from the pulpit that are very, very dangerous. Uh, another reason I'll give for biblical languages is there's just an intrinsic beauty and power in other languages. I think Greek is beautiful. Uh, I think Hebrew is gorgeous. Uh, there is something about those languages that is mysterious and attractive. And uh, it, there's just a beauty. There's an intrinsic beauty there that, that we can hardly uh, quantify. Um, I like this quote from Wittgenstein as well. He says, the limits of our language are the limits of our world. I was in Israel last year and uh, just loved being able to walk around and read the signs and, and, and press into places where if I didn't have any knowledge of Hebrew, I'd think like, ah, I don't know how comfortable I am there. And um, I spent my honeymoon in Greece and I, by that time I'd done quite a bit of Koine Greek and I got a little modern Greek book and it was just such a, uh, a, a beautiful experience to, to expand my world using the, the language that I had acquired through biblical study there. Um, your history de derives from those who take seriously the biblical languages. Many of you have an Anabaptist background. Conrad Grebel was a world-class Greek scholar, first-rate Greek scholar. Um, if you haven't read Harold S. Bender's biography of Grebel, you should do that. And you'll see how intensely and how important he, he, how importantly he took Greek. Michael Sattler knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He gave his trial defense in Latin, the famous defense that many of you know well. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being put on trial knowing that the penalty could be death and you have to speak in Latin. I mean, it, unbelievable. Um, it was their insights that generated the Anabaptist movement. And it is, I think, uh, naive to believe that what it took to generate the Anabaptist movement should not be sustained by this as well, particularly among leaders, preachers, those who, who are very committed to Bible study. Okay, really quickly about interlinearism, almost done. Uh, they have value if used correctly. Most of the time, they're not used correctly. Uh, most of the time, people abuse interlinears and they turn into these kind of word studies and somebody will will find a word that they're interested in. They'll get an interlinear, interlinear, they'll grab the word. They'll go to some dictionary online, something like that. And they'll take this almost like maximal uh, approach to understanding what that word is. Uh, in the interest of time, I, I can't spend too much time here, but we don't do that in English with our own 
studies, if you're reading Shakespeare, if you're reading Dickens, you know, we don't grab one word, go to a dictionary and like find six meanings of that word and claim that Dickens was using all six of those or meaning number five. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so silly the way that people use uh, word studies today. Uh, the value of context is essential. The value of just having read a lot of Greek, a lot in, in a lot of uh, settings is, is very important. You know, I, one, one year I taught Greek, we did a blend of modern Greek and Koine Greek and the um, it's very interesting. So if you're in Greece today and you say, um, that would be um, where is Sophocles Street? Although is the word for street. Huine is where is. And um, and so you, many senses like that. And so the word for street, the ordinary word for street is odos. And we learned it in that context. And then we would practice giving directions and things like that just to gain confidence. And then we learned later, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, Ego y mi, eodos. So Jesus says, I am the street. It's, it's a very visceral, ordinary word. You know, we hear the way that's like kind of romantic, highfalutin word there. That's not what he, he meant there. He meant just an ordinary sense of he's the street. He's the way that we, we walk day by day there. So many words that we, again, like put this like very lofty meaning into that are actually intended to be much more ordinary uh, senses of the word. Okay, so so um, as we wrap up here, how do we move forward? I generally recommend taking a class for one to two years to build a foundation. It is very difficult to sustain the motivation and have the accountability if you're just on your own to get over the hump of not knowing a biblical language and knowing it. Um, if you're interested in the Q and A, I can give you specifics about how to do this, but. It is very, very difficult uh, for anybody to to get to the point where they have that that uh, foundation without having done a course on it. It's just it's too much work. It's too much of an uphill climb in the beginning to not, to not do that. I recommend people read this book. It's called Exegetical Fallacies by D. A. Carson. It's a it's a slender book that even if you don't go that deep into Greek this will help you to spot a lot of the traps that people fall into with use of the biblical languages. After learning the language, make it a lifelong habit to spend 10 minutes a day to get better and better. I, my wife and I do this and we have a little accountability system where we spend 10 minutes a day doing this. Uh, and if you, once you get over that hump and once you've spent one to two years building that foundation, if you do just 10 minutes a day, you will get better and better and better and better. And it is a beautiful thing to experience the Bible day by day. And then eventually just use it in your daily devotional time. Uh, I, when I read my Bible, I usually do it on my computer. I have one column in English, one column in Greek or Hebrew there. And it's just part of my experience. And I, I would highly, highly, highly recommend eventually getting to the point where you are engaging in the biblical languages as, as your even devotional source of enrichment as much as possible. And I recognize there's times where that's not possible. Um, many people, many of the greats, George Mueller, the prayer warrior who is well known, he, he would read the Psalms in Hebrew. That was a staple for him. Uh, so many of the people that we, we, we look up to, we don't realize that 
tip of the iceberg there, that there was so much going on where they had applied themselves to, to serious dedication with the scriptures. Okay, so I, I, I am done at this point, so I will be glad to take any questions about anything that I covered. Thank you, Brother Finney. Uh, I really appreciate that and uh, your, your challenge to us. And also example, um, yeah, your devotion to truth, uh, following that in your life, as you and your wife have over the years, uh, and your mastery of, of Greek is, um, is inspiring and, and challenging. Um, yeah, there have a number of questions going through my mind. Um, you touched a little bit on lexicons and literatures. Um, I know that there's, uh, in the Greek world, I've, I've come across like Bill Mounts, um, some of his, some of his resources. Um, when you think of like places to, to, to go and to just put your toe in the water in these regards, where, where might, where might you point us? Yeah. So there are increasingly uh, a lot of great options for people to go to. So I, I would say if you can, my number one first choice would be do a, a class, a traditional class where you're in a room with an instructor, uh, a place like Sattler or others. There's other places you can go to there. Uh, that is definitely the the first choice because many people who, who use mounts, actually I use mounts. Um, I, I took a class with Bill Mounts uh, years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, a fine individual. He was the head of the translate New Testament translation of the ESV and the NIV. So he's very well respected. And his book is the most popular in at seminaries in the United States. Uh, I would say that is a, a fine approach, but most people who use mounts don't get very far with it because they just, they run out of steam. They run out of motivation. They get to chapter five, six and without that push of, a, of an instructor, without the deadline and the homework and all of that, it's hard to just keep up with it. So that's why, again, I, I just think for most people, 99% of people, you're going to need some kind of structured environment to, to get you through that. And like I said, it's not for life, just for a year or two until you get to the point where you're more proficient in it. There are um, increasingly more online programs that are there. Some, I'll, I'll give a couple examples of these. Uh, Bible Mesh is one that is a program that different seminaries and colleges will even take credit for. Uh, Bible Mesh, M-E-S-H. Uh, another one is Biblingo is is um, is quite uh, the, the new kid on the block, but I've been very encouraged at what I've seen there. Um, it's um, Biblingo is trying to use more of the communicative method. So Biblingo is spelled B-I-B-L-I-N-G-O. And um, both, uh, both the Bible Mesh and Biblingo are self-paced. So again, I'll give you the warning that a lot of people start and they don't finish or they don't get very far because they run out of motivation, life gets busy, et cetera. But those are a couple of programs that I think are, are very good. Uh, I... I uh, if you can't do an in, a live in-person class, there are different programs online, different seminaries or colleges where they will offer a course that has deadlines with it and say it's a 16-week course and you have to pay money for it, $1,000, something like that. And they'll say, okay, you're going to turn in your homework this time, this time, this time. Like 
something like that, I would, I would definitely prioritize just because again, you're going to get the accountability from that, that will help you to finish. Uh, a, a little bit more on this is that there's different philosophies in teaching the, the biblical languages. The traditional way is called grammar translation, where you learn a bunch of paradigms and rules along with some vocabulary and you start translating based on that. That's okay. That's the traditional way of, of teaching biblical languages. Increasingly, people are moving more towards the communicative method, which is what we do at Sattler College, where on day one, someone will walk up to you and they'll start speaking to you in Koine Greek. They'll say, Anastathi, Kathison, and all these things, and you barely know what's going on, but you're, you're going to figure out in a more natural way what those words mean. And that, in general, is a better way to learn the languages because you want the word to be associated with movement and action and feelings and experiences. So when, when you and I are speaking, Brian, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm talking to Brian, so I'm going to switch to second person. If I'm talking about Sam, I'm going to switch to third person. And I'm going to put this ending on the word. Like we don't do that. It just comes out. Humans are actually very, very good at learning languages if it's done in the right way. And the right way is, is typically a highly sensory experience where you're experiencing the word and you're making neural connections with the word, not just, it's not just strokes on a chalkboard. So that's a whole subject there. And one of the reasons why at Sattler, we really believe in this communicative method that over the long haul, if you learn it that way, you'll be much more proficient in reading and it'll be a more natural experience. It's still a lot of work, um, but those are some of the tips on, that I would give on on how to begin the journey of, of learning biblical languages. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I'm gonna open up here right shortly for Q&A from uh, the attendees here. Uh, but one thing that, that was quite winsome to me as you shared your talk is how learning Greek led you in worship of God. And I often think of learning Greek, you know, so I work with all nations, Bible translation to, to translate, um, you know, kind of a, a means, you know, to an end, um, or uh, maybe apologetics, you know, uh, wrestling with ideas and, and looking at biblical texts to to um, wrestle with ideas and convictions and, and convince others. Um, but worship really is is beautiful and and uh, wow if and if that leads you into worship wow that's a powerful uh, powerful call Amen. so thank you brother for uh, for sharing and I've I've heard you obviously do a lot of teaching and 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 uh, being able to articulate some of these deep truths of the kingdom uh, I know that Zach Johnson from from your church there was was really convinced in one of your of the kingdom road, uh, if you will, in, in your Greek class there. Um, so apologetics obviously flow out of that, but first of all, worship. Wow. That's, that's, that's powerful. Beautiful. Um, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to open it up here and, uh, anybody have a question for Brother Finn? Yeah, I, I guess I'll go, uh, here. Uh, thank you so much, Brother Finney, for that talk. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And actually, I had a question here for you um, about the word agape. And uh, you you answered it a little bit there uh, towards the end. But um, I 
I for years have heard the word uh, that, you know, our English word love, that there's, you know, agape, there's phileo, and then there's another, I think, a romantic. Yeah, eros, yeah. Um, But I've I've always uh, heard, you know, for years that this agape love is a special kind of love uh, that only comes from God. And then uh, recently I, I, you know, I came across the, and exa- uh, examples here where it says, uh, you know, like Luke 3, 32, sinners agape those who love them. And then Luke eleven forty three Pharisees agape the best seats in the synagogue. And there's a whole bunch of them where the word agape is used in not a godly kind of love. So what would be the difference between um, agape and phileo? And, and, and also the other example is where Jesus asks Peter after his uh, after mm-hmm. Peter denied Jesus, and he asks him a few different ways. How do you love me? Right. So yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great question. So yeah, the, so the the noun is agape. The the verb is agapao, and the yeah. So so generally speaking, the the word for for love for agape love or agapao love is is um is 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 very overlapping with phileo love that that kind of what is described commonly as that friendship love there and it is it is something that we we need to be very very careful to not artificially make differences where they just don't exist in the underlying greek there and those examples that you gave were excellent examples there of sinners who are having this agape love for unrighteous things. And so, yeah, it is, it is not something that necessarily is divine. Now, of course it can be divine. God can inspire a divine love in us, but the word itself doesn't communicate that it's the context. And it is the, the, the whole sentence and the whole paragraph that should determine that you're, you're absolutely right about that final chapter of John where Jesus is going back and forth between Agapao and Philo. And, it, and it's not something that in general, I think we should build a lot of theology around because it's, it's too overlapping to, to say that there is like a, a significant point there. And I know a lot of preachers like build this huge case for all the, the differences of, of meanings that is happening there. But I'm just not convinced at all based on the context and and uh, how those words are used that it's intended to be this very profound difference between the two. And so, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating case study of, of memes, right? How quickly memes can spread and how sticky they are and how how from Protestant to Anabaptist to Roman Catholic, uh, they can they all have that meme in their midst. And it's really hard to dislodge it. So I, I appreciate that question a lot because it's a, it's a, it's a great example of the abuse that has occurred there. And I, I even would go as far as to say that, especially if you are speaking from a pulpit, we really have to be responsible with our words there. And if we're propagating memes that aren't true, that, that to me is just, that that's that suggests to me that we're not really taking the truth as seriously as we should. And even though we may not have originated that false idea to be part of the chain is not that's not God honoring. And so I, we need to learn well how to properly do 
exegesis and how to properly differentiate what is true meaning versus what is more interchangeable meanings there and um and and start to right the ship and and start start to get people to be more even more humble and more you know just not to just uncritically believe the things that we hear there so yeah i i, I would just say in general i i think with that john passage that it's it's one of many places to suggest that the overlap is much greater than we are taught from the pulpit. So even just like as an example in English, like even the word adore, mm-hmm. if, if I say I adore something or I love something, it still means basically the same thing. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the yeah, that's a, that's a very good example or. I have affection for, or I esteem, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of words that we can use in English that are very overlapping. And we're not, we're not trying to make some huge point in our speech about the difference between adore and love, you know, like it's silly. And, and so if, if preachers were to apply to English, what they do to Greek, it would be comical, right? I mean, we would just, we would find (laughs) just such, such, such silly uses of um, so yeah great point there and great great question brother Paul uh, yeah thank you for for that um, any, anybody else we have we have uh, Finney on here so here's your chance any questions or comments here Finney you had mentioned people who know Hebrew uh, Greek and Latin and you know, the three of them together, it looks like a mountain, you know, and I'm just thinking in terms of a first step, is it, is it correct to say that we might get the best bang for the buck going with Greek because you could read the whole Septuagint to get Old and New Testament? What do you think about that? Yeah, hands down, that's right. So I would say if you had to pick one, pick Greek, and it's better to do one language well than several poorly. The it's good to think about in general a language as a a little bit like like how many truly, truly, truly close lifelong friends can you have? Uh, You know, you can't have that many. And and or even maybe an even stronger analogy would be um, like a spouse relationship, you know, like a, a spousal relationship is one where you're gonna have to put in daily time and daily work. And I think it's very easy for to fall into a kind of dabbling and there's a lot of people who, you know, they try Spanish for a while and then they try German and they try this and that. And it, and it's just very frustrating. I would, I would say definitely Greek for the reason you mentioned that you can do old and new Testament Septuagint plus new Testament. Greek is actually also something that for an English speaker, isn't that much of a leap to, because so many of our words in English, come from Greek. Uh, so the word for heart, cardia, we get a word cardiac from, from that word. Uh, the word for uh, eye, ophthalmos, when we go to the ophthalmologist, we're, we're, you know, we're I mean, so much of our, of, our, of our language derives from Greek. It's kind of the foreign language we already know. And so it's, it's actually a very enriching experience 
because you'll find that your English vocabulary will grow substantially as you learn Greek, as you'll make all these connections like, oh yeah, now I get it. And, and so it's, it's one, it's not technically difficult. It's left to right. Um, that's nice. Hebrew, you know, it's right to left and that's very difficult. There's almost no relationship between Hebrew and English, uh, which is very frustrating. Uh, so I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with you there. I think in today's world, Latin has diminished significantly in its importance. It used to be the case that Latin was the language of scholarship. And if you didn't know Latin, you were, you were stuck. Today, English has taken over that role. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, a lot of the introductions to biblical books used to be written in Latin. That's very rare today. Most of those are now changed over in English. And so Greek would far and away be the most important that I would say devote a couple of years to intense study to get good at that and then build a lifelong habit 10 minutes a day on that. If you want down the road, once you've gotten really good and really strong at Greek, then consider Hebrew and Latin. I would, I would personally say to probably put that third on the list. Um, so that'd be my personal recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Finney. Yes. Good question, Darwin. Uh, Sam, I see you nodding your head. So uh, can you give us a, a Sattler plug there for, for learning Greek? How's, how's that going for you? I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm coming to the end of my second semester of studying Greek. And um, a lot of the points that Brother Finney made, thank you, Brother Finney, for the talk here this morning. Um, it made a lot of sense to me. I mean, the, the, the color, seeing things in color versus black and white. I feel like I've barely cracked the door in, in being able to understand some of this texture that understanding Greek can bring to your understanding of scripture. But just the peak that I've had into adding these layers, um, multiple meanings bound up in one word, which can add um, how we add to the understanding of a Bible verse and understanding of the scriptures. Uh, it has been a great experience. And I will say to his point about Greek being kind of an underlying, or there's a connection there between Greek and English that has been very beneficial in, in studying Greek as well. Um, so the leap isn't as big as you think it is. And I don't know if you remember brother Bryant, when um, I was there, I mentioned that Greek, I was surprised that it's not as hard to, to, to learn and to grasp. Um, obviously I haven't grasped it yet, but there's some, there's some close connections between Greek and English. Um, so, and yeah, just by way of encouragement of anyone who is thinking about taking that step, it's, it's not going to be as difficult as I think that you, you typically have built up in our minds about learning another language. And it will add texture and color to your understanding of scripture. Um, so I'm excited to continue and I'm thankful for some of the resources that um, were mentioned here uh, to continue studying it. And I would second the benefit of learning it in a classroom um, with the communicative method it has been, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible way to study a language um, because it taps into all of your sensory and it's not just words on a page trying to memorize paradigms and, and verbs and things like that and to have them attached to actions. Um, it's how we learn a language, you know, from little up. So 
Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about continuing my my study of Greek and the benefits that I've received already have been great. So it, it, do you have any openings uh, at Sattler for the next uh, semester? <laughs> um, yeah, thank you uh, for sharing that, Sam. And we're at 7.30 and um, I need to go to work here this morning. So uh, we need to shut this down. So thank you, brothers, for being on here. And thank you, especially to you, Brother Finney, for sharing, for inspiring us, not only being an example and a leader in this, but then inspiring us as well to, to be students of, of God's word. Um, the, the written word uh, leads to the inner word, Jesus Christ. And may he and his kingdom be lifted up in our midst and grow in the, in the world today. Uh, we have a number of resources that were announced here this morning. Uh, Brother Glenn already has them on the website. So Exegetical Fallacies, D.A. Carson recommended book. And also we have some recommended language courses or resources to go to. Um, obviously, Sattler, you have Bible Mesh, Lingo, And also I want to mention here, too, the Biblical Greek Program by, um, by Joseph Neal. <clears throat> um, he's a brother out of uh, eastern Pennsylvania. He does kind of a mix of in-person and then online. Uh, as I understand, a great, great course. So we've had people with all nations go through his great program as well. So that would be another resource and it's linked there on the website. So uh, again, thank you, Brother Finney, for, for sharing here. Uh, would you close us in prayer, please? I would love to. Thank you. Father, may we do our very best to show ourselves to be diligent as workers who rightly handle the word of truth. Father, may we realize the, the, the intense consequences of negligence here and similarly the great beauty and power of handling your word rightly. I pray for everybody on this call and folks will hear it afterward that you would inspire us to love you with our whole mind. Father, I want us to be able to stand before you one day and say, and say, with the clear conscience that we we did our best, we gave it our all to love you with our heart, our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. So I pray for all the brothers and sisters here that we would do this not as a as an academic exercise, not as something that is intended to puff up or create superiority, but something as Brother Brian said to drive us to the living Word, that we would be able to faithfully speak the truth in love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Lord willing, we'll meet back here in two weeks, and we're going to continue the sacred writings theme that we've been working at for the last eight months. Uh, Steve Russell will be on talking about um, scripture and how we can defend it against skeptics. Uh, So again, thank you for, for being on here, and God bless your day. Goodbye. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.